listening to the CIPD podcast series. One of my favourite questions when I, when I meet with HR directors is um, several of them will very proudly say to me, look, we've, we've got external coaches, we've got an internal coaching community, we've got training for managers as coach, with coaching skills, and we even do coaching with our customers. And sometimes I'll ask them, well, how many coaching conversations do you have every month? And they'll say, oh, it must be thousands. And I ask them a very simple question. I say, so how does your organization learn from those thousands of coaching conversations? And very few can answer that question. That was Peter Hawkins from Henley Business School, and we'll hear more from him later. And coaching has indeed become the generic solution to a plethora of HR development needs. But is it always the right approach? And are we using it effectively? John McGurk is the CIPD Advisor on Learning and Talent. I use the term that coaching is like organisational aspirin because everybody takes it for every solution. And it isn't a solution always, you know, it's not always the right approach. Coaching isn't the cure-all for everything in organisations. It's got to be used mindfully. And when people use it mindlessly and just say, let's get coaching in there, and they don't really think about what it takes to support it and to build it and to change the behaviours and change the culture, then you do get half-baked woolly coaching. The CIPD's Learning and Talent Development Survey tells us that most employers do use coaching – and they're turning to it more and more often. Peter Hawkins again. I suppose I've been involved in coaching since it first began in the sort of 19, late 1970s. And in those 30 years, we have seen an enormous growth, exponential growth in coaching. Coaching at that time has made a great contribution, particularly in the areas of how do we have more of the development of leaders on the job with real issues than in the classroom. But all the research suggests that we are delivering a lot in terms of personal development, but but very little evidence that we're delivering the organisational change that's needed or the growth in collective leadership that's needed. The question is, what do we really mean by coaching and how do we make it really effective? Heather Townsend is a director at Exedia Group. The challenge we've got is that any expert advisor or mentor has jumped on the coaching bandwagon. So they're not a coach, but it sounds sexy. Let's put coaching after my title. So I'm a sales coach, I'm a marketing coach, I'm a relationship coach, I'm a stock smoking coach. And actually they're not. They're an expert or advisor. So first of all, we've got to kind of strip back, what do we mean by a coach? Problem is, the whole kind of learning and organisation world thinks, everything's fine, we'll do a bit of e-learning and then coaching on top, job done, tick box, move on. And that's the problem. Coaching needs to be carefully used and it's not always the right solution in every case. So stripped back, what is coaching really good at? It's about awareness and responsibility. The individual comes to an awareness and takes responsibility and the coach helps them to come to that realisation and then helps them to to do something about it. Coaching uses one-to-one discussions to enhance skills, knowledge and work performance. But according to Neil Morrison, Group HR Director at Random House, it's often used at the wrong moment. Often it gets introduced where there is a problem. So we've got a problem, so come and solve the problem. And that isn't, for me, the the kind of ideal use of coaching. I think the ideal use of coaching is when the individual themselves is bringing something and saying, I've got a decision I've got to make about my career, or I've got a circumstance 
where I've gone into a new team and I want to kind of work on how I embed myself there. And then a coach can be really valuable and really powerful. I think when it's seen as a sort of remedial um, intervention, then it detracts a little bit from the power. Contrary to popular belief, most coaching is done internally by line managers. In fact, less than 15% of all coaching is carried out by external coaches. Nonetheless, embedding a culture of coaching in-house is quite a task. John McGurk. The real challenge is the cultural one of getting line managers to start acting in a coach-like way when they manage on a day-to-day basis. And in your experience, is that quite a barrier? That, that is a barrier, but I think with real effort from the LNTD function, um, it can really happen. And there's really good examples of it. The last one I heard of is of Hilton Hotels, um, who've done exactly that. They, they had no coaching whatsoever in their organisation, and they thought that uh, the, the way to develop managers was to um, get line manager coaching into the organisation. And through a, a, a persistent systematic um, programme which I think has been over about two years they've managed to get line managers to act much more in a coaching focused way in terms of how they do their day-to-day job and and that's really an example that's repeated in various other companies like for example Southern Railway which are still using coaching in their maintenance function they are still using coaching with their marketing teams and their retail sales people it's all about trying to embed the idea of having a supportive and challenging conversation rather than a kind of confrontational, finger-pointing approach um, from managers. And, and that's, that's really the cultural shift that's needed. The Random House Group is one of the largest publishing companies in the UK. When Neil Morrison arrived there in 2008, he set to work on weaving coaching into the very fibre of the organisation. So initially it was, a, it was a response to coming into an organisation and seeing a huge amount of external coaches making a lot of money in our organisation. So the first thing we did was to train a number of senior individuals as coaches internally. So they went on a programme that allowed them to use their skills internally to help transform both their teams on an informal basis but also other teams on a more formal basis. And it was a kind of double win because those individuals came away feeling engaged, feeling invested in, feeling valued, but they were also able to support um, the individuals. So, for example, we're now using it as part of our leadership programme. Every single person on there has an internal coach. So that could be a member of the board or a member of the executive team in general. Um, Working with those young, I say young, uh, less experienced leaders... Um, to help develop them alongside formal development interventions. Random House is at the forefront of a seismic change in the publishing marketplace. Their burning question is how to continue to innovate and to drive efficiency against a backdrop of what is still, at heart, a very traditional business. Our industry is one that's going through a large amount of transition. So it's not a, a, something that has a start, a middle and an end. It's around a continuous pro program of being able to keep people um, confident in dealing with the challenges that they face in their areas and I think what coaches have done in that space is is to be able to support people with their thinking with the challenges with their fears even so it's an ongoing readiness process absolutely you know 2008 when I joined the organization 
you know, the Kindle didn't exist, iPad didn't exist, um, and people were talking about e-books as the big, you know, fear. That's now part of the way we do business, and maybe now there, there are issues uh, where people are looking at how we communicate with consumers um, and how we talk directly with consumers, and so it's a different group of people that are going through a transition, and the internal coaching capability allows us to deploy people to support um, those departments as they go through that rather than a kind of formal programme. At Random House, they have a pool of internal coaches and coaching is part and parcel of their leadership programme too. Elsewhere, coaching is often seen as a short-term solution detached from business goals. But the companies that run successful coaching programmes integrate them with their business strategy and see coaching as an ongoing process. John McGurk again. I think the organisations that really engage with coaching and start to think about what the consequences are for having systematic instructor coaching engagements um, and linking them to all other programmes, learning programmes, talent, leadership development, those who do that actually get a real benefit. One of the, um, one of the best examples I can think of of doing that is, um, is the jewellery company Signet, which you know basically owns H. Samuel, and they like all other jewellers in the high street, going through a massive problem in terms of retail sales falling off the cliff with the recession. And what they did was they developed a coaching approach because they had a really active learning and development leader who understood that one way that they would triumph in this very difficult market was to have people thinking constantly about customer service in a mindful way. And coaching, one of the best benefits of coaching is it helps people to reflect and think about how they do things and then to improve, and it helps them to do that without the, the sort of the whip of disciplinary action. Now, this is an organisation which is very sales-driven, where the sales director actually sponsored the coaching programme, and in that organisation, the improvement in sales was, was incredible. I think they improved their sales by about 8% in a time when everybody else's sales were falling, you know, about 10 to 15%, so that's a direct indication of what can happen when you do it properly. Which brings us to one of the biggest challenges facing coaching, metrics. The lack of hard evidence about the benefits is undermining its reputation. So how should we measure? With difficulty, I think you'll probably find that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks the learning and development community has. It's how do you actually measure all of that? The reason why most people can't measure it is they haven't answered the first question which is, why are we doing this? And it's not because so-and-so needs to go on a course, so-and-so needs some coaching. It's organisationally, what is the need? What is the impact, or what do we need to change to be seen as being a success? And then you can start to put measures around that. If you can't put measures around that, you cannot determine the ROI. And I'd almost say, as learning practitioners... Before we get asked to do activity, we need to challenge our clients, whether internal or external, on what are we trying to impact, what are we trying to do differently, and then you can put some what I call indicators in to actually see whether you've got success. Heather Townsend. According to John McGurk, looking for hard metrics is a losing game. The problem with all learning and development evaluation is that everybody is obsessed with doing things like Kirkpatrick or ROI, and without getting that's a whole conference around that in Indeed, itself, the shortcomings. Yeah. But for coaching, um, I think the best approach is to look at what we call return on expectations. 
What did you expect to improve by someone being coached or mentored? So that's the start of the process, isn't it? You absolutely have to know that before you go anywhere. Absolutely. And and, and when coaching's properly organised, and you know if you've got a coach who doesn't do this, that they're not a proper business coach, if they don't contract with line managers and talk about what's the expected outcome, if they don't talk to stakeholders, if they don't talk to the organisation about what's expected of the individual, and they just get into a sort of you know, a secret conversation with the individual and use confidentiality as a comfort blanket to do nothing um, that's actually got any meaning for the organisation, then, you know, they they are not a proper coach. At Random House, coaching is part of an ongoing effort to embed agility and readiness. So the type of goals that are set and the process for setting them is flexible. As part of a formal programme, such as our leadership programme, the goals are set by the employee themselves and then agreed with the coach and the line manager. But it could also be something where we know that a department is going through a particular change and, and the line manager would be more um, directive in terms of the, the goals that they would suggest to the individual. Um, but yes, I mean, you, you know, it, in those circumstances, it's not, you know, they're probably not the smartest objectives in the typical sense. Um, but I'm kind of okay with that. I think as long as everyone has a shared understanding of what's trying to be achieved, then that's okay and that will transition over time. Now, it's interesting you put it that way because obviously we've had conversations with various people around this. Some of them have talked about return on investment. John McGurk talked about return on expectations, which struck me as quite an interesting and useful way of expressing it. That, that sounds like what you're talking about. Certainly. I mean, I would never set out to try and measure return on investment on coaching. I think not possible or not desirable? I, I don't think it's possible. Uh, um, and actually, I think you could spend a lot of time trying to chase down a number when actually the return on investment is over decades with that individual's performance. An early example in 2010 when we set up the coaching program, we had a, an editor who was going in to pitch uh, for a particular book with a celebrity. And just two hours before, they went to see their coach in tears unable to stand up, feeling unconfident about the whole process. They went in, they pitched, they won the book, and they came out and said, you know, if it wasn't for my coach, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Now, you could try and quantify and say, well, that book generated X amount of money, but actually it wasn't about that. It was about the person feeling confident and therefore being able to transfer that into the organisation as they go forward rather than that one piece. And I think that's, you know, it is about organisational capability rather than just individual capability. And when you get those anecdotes, those are the strongest evidence for a board that you could want when people within the organisation are saying, this was really valuable to me, as opposed to L&D or HR people saying, this was really valuable to the organisation. There are common pitfalls, though, and Peter Hawkins has seen organisations that have got coaching very wrong. Well, at its worst, you know, I, I went into the retailer, which discovered that they were spending well over a million pounds on coaching. There was no coordination of that. There's no sense of it was all in different people's budgets. No measurement of outcomes. No measurement of outcomes. So you can spend a lot of money on this and not know what you're getting. Absolutely. Or have any mechanism for e- e- even knowing where it's happening. And basically people were, you know, contacting who they knew and somebody they met at the golf club. One of the things I would say is I think the the UK on the whole are ahead of a lot of other countries in not only developing effective coaching strategies and effective coaching cultures, 
but also, for instance, you know, I've done a lot of work around coaching supervision. I don't think any organisation should be employing external coaches that are not supervised. Coaching, like any other intervention, which uh, doesn't really have a regulated, professional, closed set of skills, it means that anybody can really call themselves a coach. A lot of organisations have taken our advice when we developed our coaching and buying coaching services report. Not the most sort of off the top of the tongue title, but it says exactly what it does, which is, you know, if you need to buy coaching, then, you know, here's how you should do it. You should look at, you know, tendering properly. You should look at assessing people's skills on the job. You should see how they would, you know, scenario plan different situations, how they would work with different cohorts. Um, But we have to make sure we have quality control and and ensure that HR, you know, or L&D in particular, um, has the skills to do that. John McGurk. Coaching can be woolly and generic, and it's often misunderstood or implemented poorly. When it's used effectively, though, it can be highly sophisticated and hugely beneficial. Peter Hawkins. I think one of the the big shifts we need in, in the whole coaching industry for it to have a successful next 30 years is what I term the new paradigm of coaching. And that is, rather than see the individual sitting opposite you as your client and facing them as your client, asking them what do they want from coaching. You have to start somewhere else. You have to start to see them as your partner and go shoulder to shoulder with them as a partner, not as a client. And as a partner, the two of you are both facing what is it that tomorrow's world needs them to step up to, that they're struggling to step up to. Then we have a joint enterprise and coaching becomes a a collaborative partnership endeavor not how do I help you with what you think you need to learn. Next month, fascinating CIPD research into what financial sector workers in the city really think about reward and risk-taking in their own organisations. Join me then. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.